Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct, the podcast that takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Levi, this week we watched The Hateful Eight on Christmas Day. In 30 seconds or less, give me your spoiler-free review of Hateful Eight. I made sure to take some other people to this so that I could get Mm -hmm. a range of opinions. If you love Tarantino or the movie Clue, you'll love it. (laughs) If you're not into either of those, you can go ahead and pass on this one. Just out of curiosity, did anybody in your party strongly dislike the film? Yeah, my I took Brienne, my sister, um, uh-huh. and she wasn't. She thought it was overly long. The dialogue wasn't really gripping. Um, there were a couple scenes that were just too intense for her taste. Uh, yeah. So, and Liz fell asleep during it. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but I was riveted the whole time. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'm trying to think about it because it's very different from all the other reviews we've done on this show. Because every other review I've seen the movie multiple times. This this time I've only seen the movie once. So it's hard for me to garner a full opinion just on a single viewing. But after my single viewing, I do I did really like the movie. Um, I feel like the ending was really satisfying for me. Super satisfying. And, and my, I guess my spoiler-free review is that watching this movie reminded me a lot of playing Dungeons & Dragons. <laughs> <laughs> it does! You're it absolutely does. right. Yeah. It was basically, it was, I got the same feeling walking out of the theater as I do when you and I and our and our monthly D&D group get together and play for three hours. Like, it was the same feeling that I had after playing a session of D&D that I had after watching this movie. Yeah, well, and um, the, you know, the introduction of all the characters, especially kind of once you get to minis, is very much Kurt Russell walking up and being, what's your story? Yeah, exactly. It was very much that. It was like uh, our us in the tavern, and then, uh, you know, so we're just kind of all, you know, having our exposition throughout, learning each other, fleshing each other's characters out, having interactions with each other. Then suddenly the shit hits the fan, and then all of a sudden everything explodes. <laughs> That's basically kind of what my experience of The Hateful Eight is from a spoiler-free perspective. So I think, you know, um, if people are listening to this, we are definitely going to spoiler spoil this movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, but before we go into spoilers, just would you recommend going and, and watching this movie in the theater? And specifically it, watching the 70 millimeter Roadshow Edition, which is, I think, what you watched as well. Yeah, and I guess that's the part I'm curious about. What happens mm-hmm. in the full release? Does it get – what happens to the picture? Do they shrink the picture yeah. or do they cut off the edges? I believe that the it will shrink to a normal aspect ratio. Um so I think that that would probably cut off the sides. Uh, the movie will be shortened, and you won't have the intermission or the overture. Oh my god! Yeah, go see it in the roadshow version. Um, yeah. If you've been listening to this podcast, like you're obviously <laughs> into Tarantino, and this movie is another great uh, product from him. I think he's yeah. done a fantastic job. If and just be ready for exposition. This is one of the most. <laughs> expository would that be the correct word yeah i guess so. like there's just it's mostly talking you think about the body counts of previous movies there's only eight people well, to kill so uh, <laughs> there's more than eight people to kill in this movie but it and i wouldn't i wouldn't say that i say that there, i'd say that there's a lot of exposition but there the the final act kind of the third act is very much action-packed yeah. like there's a moment in the film where uh, where bodies start to hit the floor, and then from that point on, it gets pretty it gets pretty intense from a violence and action standpoint. Yeah, and it's so this you know this uncut version is fan. It really does feel like watching Ben Hur or Lawrence of Arabia. You know, mm-hmm. between the overture, yeah. the intermission, and just it's like going to a museum. Uh huh. And you know, there are just shots that are just purely for the the beauty of that. Oh, God. Of that yeah. moment. Like, you know, just watching the horses, it doesn't do any, it's not moving the plot along, but they're beautiful shots. He really took 
the time to make sure that this fits the the era that he's that he's kind of riffing on. Yeah, absolutely. So I think uh, before we go into spoilers, we're five minutes in now. I I, I say go see it for sure. Definitely absolutely. go see this movie. <laughs> All right. So now we're gonna get into spoilers. So uh, I I want to start off just by what you were talking about, Levi. There's a scene when they have to. Uh, hit the stakes into the ground to um to make a line out to the outhouse. Yeah. And it's uh <laughs> it's just so so intense and so harsh because they're just walking through this blizzard and then you have the score going and it's getting louder and louder and louder and it's like this synth uh score that's that's just building and building and building and up until the point where it's almost ear piercing. And then we go back into the uh, the haberdashery and it was just so great because it shows the intensity of what's happening outside and how and it really locks these people into this room which i thought was really cool well and you get um i think one thing that i read going into it was you kind of want to pay attention to the geography mm-hmm. of the environment because in this kind of murder this mystery setup you want to know where everything is. So they're putting the stakes out to the bathroom. And ultimately that didn't really come into play. Right. But I was enraptured at just like, okay, so Barnes over here, you know, I was building kind of a mental model to kind of track where people were <laughs> yeah. in the movie. And it paid off when it came to poisoning the coffee. Cause if yeah, you're thinking cool. about the, the room and they really take their time setting up, there's the barn, the bathroom, and then the interior of the haberdashery is basically set up into the four sides. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just it felt really immersive if if you go in kind of with that intent. At yeah, least. I don't I mean, know. It, did you get that same sense? Yeah, I did. Uh, I but I also felt like I, I did feel like that paid off though because uh, Obi has to go dump the guns into the outhouse. And so you saw what it was like when they were putting the stakes in the ground, and now he's got to take that journey again to go out there and put put the put the guns in the outhouse. So you know, Ob is the real hero here. Ob, I think we could all agree that is the best comedic <laughs> relief when he comes in and throws himself in front of yeah. the fire and swears up and down that he's not going back out, and then he draws short shrift to go out yeah. and dump the bodies. Yep. Oh, I just felt so great. bad for him. It was so good when the um when Tarantino starts coming in after the intermission comes in with the with the um voiceovers reading the reading the action. And and it was just this kind of a throwaway throwaway line. If you weren't paying attention then you wouldn't have gotten it. But there was just that line of yeah, OB draws the short drew the short straw. Everybody in the theater was just like, "Oh no." Which I think is a is a great account for this film because people were enraptured and enthralled the whole time. The viewing that you went to is it sold out? Yes, um, and it yeah. looked like it was sold out all day. I bought our tickets yeah. a week in advance, and when we got there, the line was out and around the theater. And it seemed, and the people that walked by were talking about you know like several showings ahead. You'd have to buy uh-huh. tickets for so it was it was packed. Yeah, I didn't go actually. I didn't go on Christmas Day. I went yesterday morning. I did the eleven o'clock showing, and I was uh, because because it was sold out. I was planning on buying tickets Christmas Day. That w- that did not happen. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of great because the last two movies that I've been to have been complete sellouts. Because I I went to Force Awakens opening night, and then you know an eleven o'clock show on Saturday morning, and having that completely chock full of people was like. It was just awesome. My favorite part was watching uh, <laughs> at eleven o'clock when the overture began. Watching people try to filter in and find seats, I'm like, "You assholes!" Well, because they're all waiting for. It yeah. was great. There was no preview. It was just. Well, it, was, it went but... into the overture for us. I don't know if you had previews, but no, I was... we didn't have any previews. Oh, it was so cool! When was the last time yeah. you went to a theater and didn't get the? <laughs> It's like, oh my god, yeah, this is a awesome. movie. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we're we're doing this. But uh, I was just talking about like people who didn't think. I mean, I got there 15 minutes early, and luckily I went by myself, so I was able to get a good seat because you know if you, you go to theater by yourself, those there's ones always that people leave open between themselves. Oh, yeah, exactly. Also right there. Thank you. And you don't feel bad about it because it's a sellout, so it's like 
you're gonna get people sitting next to you that's, that's that's the nature of the beast but the people who were walking there were people walking in like five minutes late and then like trying to file in and scoot past people i'm like come on guys like don't show up five minutes late for a sold out show anyway that's a personal well, thing it seems anyway people that hunted these tickets out because we had a yeah. really dynamic crowd everybody's laughing gasping mm-hmm. i mean people yeah. were really making noises and it was fun and in all the interviews we've kind of listened over the course of this cast is, you know, Tarantino, that movie theater experience is really important to him. It's more, yes, it's the reason he goes for film and he hates digital because digital you can recreate in your living room, but film, you've got to go to the theater and then you're surrounded by people and then you're getting kind of that energy. It's the same reason a concert is so much mm-hmm. better than listening. Like the quality is probably better when you're listening it on your own system, but you want to be right. surrounded by people who are all just, you know, kind of that. That, en- yeah. that electricity that you feel. Yeah, I mean, it's it's part of the reason why people, you know, have gathered together for religious ceremonies for thousands of years. Because there's something inspiring that happens when you all get in a place together to experience something um, it, it, that that's greater than yourself. And I think that concerts completely, uh, you know, draw upon that. And I think that movies do that as well when they're done right. And he got to commend Quentin Tarantino for creating that experience for us because it just doesn't happen anymore in the days of VOD and the bit torrents. And, <laughs> you know, why is there a reason to go to the theater? Like, my wife really wants to see this Tina Fey Sisters movie. And I want to see it too. It looks like a really funny movie, but I don't see any real reason to see it in the theater as opposed to waiting for it to come out and renting it on Amazon and watching it on my Roku while I'm cozy on my couch. Yeah. Like, this is a cinematic experience, and I, yeah, it's just this great time. You know, December of 2015, we've had two awesome opportunities for cinematic experiences. You have to go see Star Wars in the theater. You have to go see Hateful Eight in the theater, um, and they're two different things. I mean, Quentin Tarantino has created an audience manipulation session for three hours, which is just beautiful and wonderful and so unique as an experience. So I think that I don't know. It, I, I hope that that's not clouding my judgment, but because I just love the experience of it, of just going to the theater and and what he presented to me and the opportunity that Quentin Tarantino gave me to have a cinematic experience. Well, I think that's all um, that ultimately matters because, you know, my sister and I, I was asking her, you know, trying to understand what she didn't like. And the thing is, Tarantino makes a movie for himself. And if you like it, that's great. But he doesn't have to make a movie that everybody likes. So right. I think that what's nice is that we are that dem- – that that it's not a demographic because I don't think that's how he – we are the movie goers that he is <laughs> yeah. reaching out to. And I think when we enjoy this experience, it's it sings. That's – you know, it's what he was going for and that's all that mm-hmm. – that's all that matters. He enjoyed the – I mean that's – the the history of you know non blockbuster films in the sense of you know it's not Star Wars or Fast and Furious. I mean, there are plenty <laughs> yeah. of movies out there that are the goal is for you to enjoy a story. And I think that well, it's a you know it's a massive business, the entertainment industry. That there are still those out there that are making movies that are artists. Yeah, and. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. The, the amazing thing to me is the last time I had a cinematic experience like this, it was also Quentin Tarantino, is when I went and saw Grindhouse, um, which was a completely unique cinematic experience. Like, It's just really cool that he offers this out to people to say, you know, go to the theater, have a different experience. Like, <laughs> You don't have to watch the 25 previews in front of Star Wars. <laughs> you don't have to... You know, worry about the people who are texting next to you or talking during the film. Like in the screening I was in, everybody was just enthralled and enraptured by the by the flicker of that twenty four frames per second. Um, you know, <laughs> flicking by. Um, I I thought it was a just a really fun experience uh, to begin with. You know, this movie is the Hateful Eight, so you know. I think we should just go through character by character. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's another, you know, we've gone through these films and some of them it's characters and some of it's storyline. This is absolutely a a character movie. Character movie. So let's start off with the first character. And I would argue the protagonist of the film, Samuel L. Jackson, is Major Marquis Warren, the bounty hunter. 
And just um, his usual intimidating, <laughs> angry You know, self. I like it, though. Oh, I like yeah. What, he... I like what Tarantino does with his mainstay actors in that he likes to flip-flop them. So, you know, we had, like, uh, with Samuel Jackson, let's just take him, for example. Pulp Fiction, Jules is basically everybody's favorite character in that movie. He's my favorite character in that movie. And and he's the guy that we're going on this spirit journey with throughout the film, <laughs> you know. Uh, the film opens in the diner where he has his cathartic moment with, with Ringo. Um, and then we cut to him and and uh, uh, John Travolta's character in the car as they go to pick up the package, uh, the briefcase. So he's kind of our spiritual journey through that movie. And I really love him in that movie, even though he's ruthless. But then the next time we see him in Jackie Brown, he's like the biggest asshole in the world. So he like goes from hero to villain. And then, you know, the last movie we saw him in was Django. He was the villain in that one. And in this one, I would I would argue that he is the hero of this movie, um, if there can be a hero in this movie, because everybody is so damn hateful. <laughs> well, and they give so much good. I love the way that they roll out the backstory, mm-hmm. especially with with the major because it goes from oh we know he's a decorated war hero when kurt russell picks him up and then they pick up walton goggins and he lays out like oh by the way when he burned his way out of a prison camp he took you know almost as many of his own men as he did uh, you know rebels yeah um so then you're like oh and then you get in and you find out that he was part of a battle where you know the uh bruce dern's character you know basically just massacred prisoners of war yep and so then you're back on his side and then he raped that guy's son supposedly we still have no <laughs> i don't think he did providing evidence um we could talk about we could talk about whether or not he did this was a discussion on on the reddit thread as to whether or not that actually happened i don't think it did but i think it um, did just the <laughs> just based on how hateful his character is and you know huh. i think it's like you talk about kind of the you know, he made such a point out of people coming after him and him killing them. And I would buy that when, because he makes a big point out of when he sits down across from Bruce Dern and Walton mm-hmm. Goggins, the the sheriff, you know, tells him to leave him alone. And he says, you know, we shared a battlefield. Are you going to deprive me of that? You have this moment where, oh, they, you know, they, they share that. But yeah. the... At the same time, because they shared a battlefield, and yet Bruce Dern did not recognize the rules of war by killing these prisoners, yeah. um, you know, I under- I would totally believe that he would do that as a... It's the... It's similar to... Because uh, Tim Roth brings up this point about... And I loved it, and we should talk about it, too, at some point. Mm-hmm. It's all just so interlaced. I'm, like, blowing yeah, through it I all. Know. But the idea <laughs> of... There is the internal justice, but then there's the dis- the passionate justice yes. versus yep. the dispassionate justice. And what mm-hmm. Major Warren doled out was passionate justice. And it was yeah. wrong, in a sense. Yes, it was. Well, you know, I the reason why I don't think that it, I don't think that that actually happened. It actually does go back to a line that was spoken earlier in the film by john ruth kurt russell's character when he says you can kick him down the stairs and say it's an accident but you can't just shoot him <laughs> when he's talking in, in terms of, of of offing old men and i feel like this was simply marquise warren's uh this was his version of kicking him down the stairs and calling it an accident he was doing everything that he could to get him to pick up the pistol so that he could gun him down and he was doing that i think in vengeance for what happened at the Battle of Baton Rouge. But I don't think, and we, we talked about, you know, the Lincoln letter, uh, you know, the Lincoln letter, he, he, he admits that that was a, a fabrication in order to get a, as a means to an end. I also think that the dick sucking story was a fabrication to get to a means to an end. That's to a off really this good guy. argument, I think. And the, the other thing that I thought was interesting because, and this is this is going to be very interesting for people who watch this not in the roadshow format because there is a slice down the middle of the movie when the inter- intermission happens, um, and specifically we come back from the intermission and all of a sudden there's voiceover and there was never voiceover before. I'm wondering how that's going to play in the non roadshow format, or maybe 
maybe the voiceover won't be the non-show ro- non-roadshow format. I don't know. Um, but the dick sucking story happens, and then Marquis uh, Warren shoots down Bruce Stern's character, and then we go to intermission. And then right as the lights come up, you know, people started chatting around me, and I was kind of eavesdropping on people. And this guy behind me was like. Uh, man, you know, I, re- I really wish they hadn't shown it. I wish they just would have had Marquise Warren say the story, but not actually show the visuals of the guy, the naked guy walking through the snow. And, um, and his reasoning was that, you know, the whole story has taken place in this cabin, basically. And I wish that it had just stayed in the cabin. And for me, I think it did stay in the cabin. I think what we were we weren't seeing an actual depiction of what happened. We were seeing what was happening in uh you know Bruce Stern's head. The the cuz cuz I mean Samuel Jackson even looks at the camera and says, "You're starting to see pictures, aren't you?" You know, to Bruce Stern's character. I think that that whole visualization was simply what Bruce Stern was seeing in his head leading him up to actually grabbing that gun and and pointing it at at Marquise. Well, and even the, I like the line that you're starting to see pictures now, aren't you? Because yeah, it's just a, it's him breaking the fourth wall mm-hmm. to the audience. And a people little laughed when that yeah. happened at our theater because it was, it was funny because it was like, you're starting to see pictures. Well, yeah, you're showing us the pictures. It's a nice, <laughs> it was a nice wink and a nod. Um, yeah, it's this interesting. Uh, so I have to recommend this YouTube series. It's called Every Frame of Painting. It's done by this dude up in Vancouver, and he does a phenomenal job at breaking down filmmaking from different directors. And he hasn't done Quentin Tarantino yet, but there are two uh, there are two videos on that series that I really suggest people watch. One of them is this Kurosawa uh, movement video where he talks about Kurosawa's blocking and uh, camera moves, which is just uh, phenomenal. And and I'll get to that later because I think that that really incorporates into this Hateful Eight movie. But the second one is having people breaking down the fourth wall, but not just having people look into the camera and the effects that that has. And he does it from a villain standpoint because it's this knowing thing to the audience. But yeah, I love how... I love how Samuel Jackson breaks down the fourth wall, but he doesn't because he's looking at Bruce Stern's character, but we're we're shooting him head on so that his eyes can can look directly at the audience. Just audience manipulation, man. That's what QT is all about. Damn good stuff. Damn that good and the stuff. irony of after that story, he is shot in the testicles. Dude, can we put this on the Tarantinoisms, please? Now getting it has shot to. in the Tarantino. <laughs> yes. Last three movies. Last three. I, ha- I if I. Could sit down with Quentin Tarantino. There are a million questions that I would want to ask him, but one of them is definitely: Are we going to have a guy shot in the balls in every movie? Because <laughs> it happens in Inglorious Bastards in the basement scene. You know, it's almost word for word what uh, T- Channing Tatum's character says in Hateful Eight. Yeah, before but he does it. Spanish versus German, which I really I yeah. enjoyed that language play, and I had to lean over to Liz because she loves Inglorious Bastards all the time. I was like, yeah. you recognize that line? <laughs> say Alvito, say Alvito, nuts. <laughs> Exactly. It was like almost word for word. So yeah. Um, so the balls get shot off in Glorious Bastards, and then Walton Goggins' character's balls get shot off in Django Unchained because he was the one who's going to castrate G- Django. And so when Django comes back to the mansion to Candyland to uh, uh, enact his final revenge, he shoots Walton Goggins right in the balls. And then yeah, and Samuel Jackson's balls get shot off. So <laughs> did they take Kurt Russell's balls in Death Proof? Uh, I'm trying no, to remember at I don't the end so. when they're wailing on him. I mean, yeah, maybe he gets punched in the balls, but he definitely doesn't get him shot off. He only gets shot in the shoulder. Oh, that's in, right. Or in the arm. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. yeah. Definitely that's a Tar- that's a new Tarantinoism. I expect to see that in films 9 and 10 before he <laughs> retires. Well, the other thing that... And I said we should look for it in last week's... Um, in last week's episode, at the Django Unchained episode, is the let's make a deal and then the deal gets changed. That's happened in the last three movies as well. Because it happened in Inglorious Bastards when Christoph Waltz's character uh, makes a deal with the Americans for the surrender. And um, and then as they're transporting him, they carve the, the Nazi symbol into his forehead, and that's how the deal changes. Uh, in Django Unchained, they make the deal for Broomhilda, to sell her for twelve thousand dollars, and then after the sale goes through, 
then the deal changes because Schultz kills Candy. Um, and then in this one, you know, they make the deal at the end of the movie, or they at least propose the deal to its to what seems like a logical conclusion. Um, as as uh, Daisy Dormergoo, <laughs> as she, you know, uh, she does the deal with the sheriff with Walton Goggins' character, and at the end, he's like, "Actually, no deal," <laughs> which which was very satisfying in the theater. People loved that. People loved hearing that full on. Uh, deal get made, and then and then Walton Goggins standing up and being like, "No, that's that's not going to happen." I love that the Samuel Jackson had a gun, and that he basically does is trying not to let the deal go through. Yeah, and that they still leave it in Walton Goggins' hands. Like when he runs out of bullets, <laughs> and you're like, "Oh shit!" Like one person has total power in this situation, and. <laughs> You know, you for the whole movie, you've assumed that he's not a great guy. Yeah. But he still comes down on the on the side of right. And in the end, you buy that he is. I mean, I just from this from start to finish, I think Walton Goggins really, really crushed the part as <laughs> Sheriff Mannix. Yeah. Well, he did a great job in that he we hate him at the beginning of the movie. And then by the end of the movie, we're rooting for him. Like, you gotta love when that turn happens throughout a film. Well, when Samuel Jackson calls him over to his side, and you're, you just, it shows that he is, while he hates, you know, this, the rebel renegade history, that he understands kind of the, the tension of the moment. And he, it's, it's great. It's one of those, and I don't know where we've, I guess we've seen it with Butch and, um, Oh, I can think it's Ving Rhames. I can't think. Uh, Marcellus Wallace. It's mm-hmm. that like unlikely partners moment. Yeah, I film. mean, I, it was really reminiscent to me at the end of the movie when they're sitting there and they're piles of blood and ev- they're just blood everywhere. It reminded me so much of Reservoir Dogs with Mister White and having Mister Orange in his lap at the end of the movie. <laughs> like, I think I feel like this movie has so many little pieces of other films, like. About halfway through the movie, I was getting a pretty strong Jackie Brown vibe from it, and just that like it's a lot of big characters and a lot of dialogue and a lot of exposition, and a lot of interaction. That's very much Jackie Brown, but also like this movie is so much Reservoir Dogs, and that it's like a single setting. It's a pressure cooker. There, are, there are traitors in the midst. Uh, uh, we eventually get the the traitors revealed to us, and we see their backstory. And then at the end, it's it's basically everybody dies. Like it's very much a, a retelling of Reservoir Dogs in the Old West in that way. I really want um, to turn this into a board game. Yeah, where it's <laughs> where it's one of those ones where how can you come out alive? Because if uh-huh. somebody shoots, everybody shoots, and everybody dies. I don't know. It's just that was <laughs> what I came out of the movie going like, God, I wonder if I could turn this into a because it's it's that perfect <laughs> setup where yeah. You can't just shoot everybody because that right. kind of the whole th- then the whole thing goes under and you there's no yeah. way that you guarantee that you come out alive. So mm-hmm. you're right in that tension and there's kind of just that and that's what makes me think of Clue is that mm-hmm. you understand that something's you're not being told all of the facts and so you're trying to piece together from the bits and pieces and when they got to the end and the real deal is like, well, everybody there except for Bruce Dern was a bad. It makes sense. It's Occam's razor. Like, yeah, of course, everybody in there is in on it because it doesn't make <laughs> yeah. like from the beginning when we find out that Bob with how much that the major questions Bob, that should have been the giveaway that nobody else had a problem with Bob. Yeah, it- you know, Samuel Jackson definitely has the smartest guy in the room syndrome in this movie, which is indicative of Quentin Tarantino movies in the past as well. Like, Chris F. Waltz's Schultz was always the smartest guy in the room. He was always a step ahead of everybody. Um, Jackie Brown was always the smartest person in the room. She was always a step ahead of everybody. Uh, very much, like, Samuel Jackson knows right off the bat that there is shady shit going down. Like, because he knows right off the bat that Bob is not who he says he is. And that Minnie did not turn over the the, the haberdashery to Bob, um, but he he's also caught between a rock and a hard place because it's the middle of winter, it's a Wyoming blizzard, and uh, and so he can't leave, you know. 
so he's he he knows it's he knows that something really shady is happening, but at the same time he can't leave and he can't do anything about it because um, he doesn't know who else is in on the plot, which is you know really interesting. I think that'll come through on subsequent viewings, like how much Samuel Jackson actually knows throughout this movie. Yeah, I'll uh, definitely. This is a movie I want to go back see a second time, um, and then I want to. I you know I don't know if I'd go back to it more after that other than if you were introducing mm-hmm. somebody to the movie kind of similar to like yeah. usual suspects you know it's yeah the two viewings you've kind of got you understand everything yourself and then after that it's more satisfactory as a you got to watch this movie cuz then you're kind of <laughs> enjoying watching other people come to the you know it's kind of a nostalgia by proxy you know, you're <laughs> yeah, vicariously, you're enjoying the film vicariously through other people. Well, and I don't think that this is a type of movie where the twist makes the movie like the usual suspects. Like, I think that this is the type of movie like Reservoir Dogs where, yeah, if you like, it's great on first viewing because those reveals are so strong. Um, but on subsequent viewings, it still works because. Uh, because everything else is so strong, the filmmaking, the the dialogue, and everything else. I do want to talk about Kurt Russell because I feel like you were a big fan of John Ruth. Is Huge that true? fan, absolutely, and okay. I love Kurt Russell. I mean, <laughs> oh, Big Trouble in Little China, so The Thing, and the Escape from L.A. and New York movies, which are uh-huh. agreeably super bad, but the way that he acts <laughs> makes it so enjoyable and seeing him in death proof was really satisfying you know as evil mm-hmm. as his character was he just i don't know what it is about kurt russell but i think he's he's one of my favorite from kind of that generation of handsome guy actors yeah well he is like he channels we talked about it in death proof he channels john wayne so much in that movie in oh. this movie he is like full-on john there are wayne. moments where his accent is pure john wayne <laughs> yeah exactly um yeah and his his interactions with daisy were so interesting because it was this weird it was this weird like dichotomy where he like i feel like there were times where he felt like he was warming up to her but then he would have to like check himself and then he would do something really vicious and mean toward her in order to swing the scales the other way. Like, you know, like he, like the, you know, the one that comes to mind is when she's playing guitar and he's like, that's really nice. Play another verse. And then she plays it and he just smashes the guitar. He's like, he's like trying to check himself and keep himself in check as the hangman. Well, and it's, it's akin to an abusive relationship. Oh, absolutely! What it really is like there are moments where it does get warm, but then he punches her in the mouth. Yeah, I mean they're literally like he literally becomes her ball and chain. (laughs) 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 Like she can't get around because he's got this fat ass two hundred pound man strapped to her arm. Uh, I did, I did really love that scene where she chops off his arm and it like slides out of the sleeve. There was, (laughs) (laughs) there was just some. Yeah, is this so great to watch a Quentin Tarantino movie in a theater that was packed full of people? Because the reactions were so interesting. Well, the gore um, at the end gets so graphic. Like, when Samuel Jackson I don't know, man. blows I heads don't see open. And... I, yeah. I, yeah, but I don't see how it's any more graphic than than Inglorious Bastards. Or, I mean, I, I actually, personally, I think Inglorious Bastards is his most violent movie. Because the violence is a little more brutal in in the ways that... Like the baseball bat smashing people's heads in, and uh, you I don't know. know something about it just felt more intimate. I I can admit mm. that the Inglorious Bastards is objectively the more violent, more gory. But there's something about every one of those deaths. Really, you know, you're you can count them because you've been <laughs> yeah trapped with these people for two and a half hours. Um. In that movie, so I don't know. I think there's just some, something about it. Kind of, it did make me go, just like, oh god, I still watched, <laughs> but everybody yeah. else in my group turned away. <laughs> Interesting. I didn't think it was that bad, but maybe you know, having spent the last eight weeks watching Tarantino <laughs> movies, kind of gets you in the gets you in the groove. Uh, I did think it was also funny because, man, I was drawing all these parallels to Reservoir Dogs. Tim Roth gets shot right in the stomach. <laughs> 
<laughs> and he starts screaming, and I was like, oh, I've seen this before. Did you notice this? Liz pointed it out to me. Tim Roth changes his accent oh, yeah. after he had shot. I didn't notice well, he- it, but it's a beautiful touch. That oh, even the British yeah, guy yeah. fakes his British, which British accent he has. <laughs> I love that, man. And yeah, I just really, I love that reveal when we go to the flashback and when the gang actually arrives uh, there at the haberdashery and he's got like the Cockney accent instead of like the, you know, the proper British accent, which I thought was so funny. It's an interesting choice for his character to make because like, it's not like they would know if he had a Cockney accent that he was his... That you know he was English, uh, English whatever his name was, English Bob. <laughs> I think yeah. It was. Um, for Tim Roth, so I read this I think a little bit on the on the forums for the direct. Um, yeah, a couple people were saying, or maybe it was just one person that you know that was probably a role for Christoph Waltz. Yeah, and and whoever it was that wrote, I'm scrolling through now. Um, whoever it was had said you know they kind of wish that it had been Christoph Waltz. They didn't think that mm-hmm. Tim Roth did. I really love Tim Roth in that role, and I think that I've had so much of an intellectual Christoph Waltz at this point that it was kind of a nice breather. It was, and Christoph Waltz has a way of stealing the scene. So I don't know if his his you know I who am I to who am I to judge Christoph Waltz, but I'm not, I'm not sure if him locked in this space with everybody if that. Uh, if maybe he would be too big for the place. Um, but I would love to see him in a little more auxiliary roles. I just, you know, a lot of people hated Spectre, and I wasn't a huge fan of Spectre, but I still loved every scene that Christoph Waltz is in. The guy is, just has something, some kind of panache, as he would say in, in Django Unchained, that makes it makes my eye draw to him at all times. And yeah, the way that Oswaldo is so jovial at the beginning, and even his mannerisms, it almost seemed like Tim Roth was channeling Christoph Waltz in some ways. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I would have loved to see Christoph Waltz in this movie. I don't think it would have detracted too much from it, because Samuel Jackson is a powerhouse, and it'd be kind of nice to see Christoph Waltz in a little bit more of an auxiliary, a little more comic reliefy type role. Because I did find myself drawn to the hangman. I thought that uh, he was he was a really good contrast to everybody else who was in there, who was kind of these dingy Western fellows, and I liked having the the posh uh, Brit uh, gallivanting around inside as well. Um, yeah. Who else do we have? We have uh, we have Joe Gage, who's played by Michael Madsen. <laughs> doesn't really uh, do a lot, but doesn't really do a lot kind of meander around in the background but you do because of the because of the wide angle you do see him wandering around in the background Uh uh-huh yeah and i do like too how all three of those guys were wearing black leather black leather gloves so when they had him up on the wall you're like well i guess it could be any of them (laughs) and like i completely forgot about you know the diegetic music in this movie the silent night playing um as as samuel jackson is telling the the story to the confederate uh general um and so when when bob was like no i was over there playing silent night the whole time i was like oh yeah you were over there playing silent night the whole time well and i knew so that he's out oswaldo had been at the bar because i was tracking the movement in the room so i kind of uh-huh. i went oh no he was he was just drinking at the bar so that only left uh joe gage in that instance yeah Man, I yeah, and I love how you know when the you right before intermission. Another thing I loved about intermission is that when the Confederate general dies, now you're like, okay, now anybody can die because we spend that whole time, you know, going through exposition, learning about the characters, having interactions with with each of the characters, and seeing how they play off of each other throughout the film. Um, but yeah, once Bruce Stern dies, then you're like, okay, now the deaths, now the death is possible, and now uh, you know the shit is starting to hit the fan, and then it does, and then it it, it not only it's not only shit hitting the fan, it's a ton of blood because it's spraying everywhere. Uh, yeah, so I think that's I think that's all. I mean, no, also, we missed uh, one. We should who, talk Bob? about Daisy Domergue, Jennifer oh, Jason Leigh, of Lee, course, um, yeah, as a Wild West female Joker, Batman's Joker. <laughs> I just loved it when she was drenched with blood. Which was frequently. Uh, she had blood yeah. on her almost the entire movie. 
Yeah, it was. She was like Carrie, you know. It was like, but she loved it instead of being reviled by it. It was like, <laughs> it was just like this horror. She like becomes this horror character as uh, as the blood just drains uh, all over her body, and she's you know cackling through this red sea of of, of violence that's that's <laughs> washed over her. It's so cool. Um, yeah, I thought she did an amazing job. It, in the uh, live read that happened to this movie, there was a live read that happened at the Ace Hotel in Los Angeles, uh, I think like a year ago, um, and Jennifer Jason Lee was not Daisy Domergu. It was actually Amber Tamlin, who was uh, – she had that bit role in Django Unchained. Uh, Amber Tamlin, I think, is a little younger than, than, uh, than Jennifer Jason Lee, and I thought Jennifer Jason Lee was, like, awesome. Like, she was, like – like there was just everything about her was like this is a believable old west lady. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the the thing that came up to me was when we see Zoe Bell later as Six Horse Judy. I'm like, her teeth are way too nice for the old. Yeah, west. she's too peppy for somebody who drives <laughs> a team of horses around the wild west. Yeah, I thought I liked her peppiness. I think that Zoe Bell is she's she's such a dynamic person that whenever she's on screen, it's like that is a it's a fun person to watch. But yeah, it, it it wasn't only her teeth. Like Samuel Jackson's teeth were way too nice as well. <laughs> I I just feel like dental hygiene in the old west was <laughs> to the point where everybody's teeth were rotten out of their mouths by the time they were forty. Uh, yeah, everybody yeah. was generally pretty old for this movie, which was kind of cool. Yeah, you don't get that. Very I like often. it, man. Well, because they should be weathered, except for the one role that I thought should have definitely been recast. And that is Channing Tatum, man. Really? That guy, oh, I couldn't stand it. I just couldn't stand it. He wasn't around long enough for me to really care. I don't know why he... everybody's putting such weight on that. I just wrote in my notes, Tatum dash no, period. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we talked about it in the Death Proof podcast, in that there are certain actors who make Tarantino's words sing and they all do it in their own ways it's not like there's a single singular type of person that can say quentin tarantino's dialogue um you know the way michael madsen rasped it out of his you know out of the side of his mouth is much different than the way that quentin tarantino like or that samuel jackson likes to kind of preach it you know but there's a, there's a bunch of different ways that tarantino's dialogue can be said and there's a bunch of different actors who have the capacity to make it sing Channing Tatum is not that actor. <laughs> I I just I had a, such a hard time with he had like this weird accent that was like this weird like southern genteel thing where he was like rounding off his Rs. And the other thing is I didn't believe him as Daisy's brother either. Like I feel like Daisy's brother would be similarly like stringy and uh and shifty and I it, Tatum just came across as way too smooth for me. Um, he didn't come across as like a ruthless gang leader. He came across, across as kind of like a baby face. Um, so, I, I, you know, maybe Quentin Tarantino just wanted to round out the 21 Jump Street cast. <laughs> he does Jonah Hill and Django, and he does Tatum in the Next he in needs, Hateful Eight. Is it Ice Cube? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he does. He get, well, Nick Offerman actually would have been pretty good in this movie, maybe. It's like, oh, man, Nick Offerman could have been really good as the old man <laughs> playing chess in the haberdashery. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, but in the – so I'm, I'm trying to look it up right now. But in the live read for The Hateful Eight, uh, Jody's character was played – I'm trying. I'm looking up the uh, the name of the actor here. It's played by James Remar, who was the guy who played Candy's bodyguard in Django, the guy with the double-barreled sawed-off shotgun. Oh, like yeah, that, and that completely makes so much more sense to me as Jody being like a much older person, uh, much more grizzled, much more intimidating. Like I just didn't like the whole Tatum as Mister Smooth walking through, hiding out in the basement for hours and hours in the middle of a blizzard, and I, it, it just didn't read for me. But huh. anyway, didn't have that that's, problem. That's my, read. <laughs> that's my read on the situation. A <laughs> uh, couple great things here too. I love the Mazzana Rosa cigarettes, the red apple cigarettes. Yeah. Something we haven't talked about, but the red apple cigarettes are in every Quentin Tarantino movie. 
And I love that they were still around in the Old West. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, and I didn't um, catch it the first time when he said Manzana Roja, and then when I yeah. saw the packaging, I went, oh, of course it's Red Apple. Of like, course. I should have known that. I know those <laughs> words in Spanish. <laughs> Uh, another thing I really like is that Quentin Tarantino returns to the chapters, which I believe he hadn't done since Kill Bill. Uh, no, he did chapters for Inglorious Bastards, but he, he didn't did? do them okay. in Django and Chained. Do I don't think. Yeah, so I like the I like the return of the chapters, and I like that as a I just like that device, and I think it works for Tarantino, and I think maybe if somebody else did it, would be pretty derivative. But I like him returning to that form. Um, Another thing interesting, the the eighth film from Quentin Tarantino. Uh, so that means that he counts Kill Bill as one film, which is interesting. But putting that at the beginning of the movie, I, he hadn't done that since um, since Kill Bill, and when he had the fourth film from Quentin Tarantino. I, so, or maybe he did it at Death Proof too, but he definitely didn't do it for Django or Inglorious Bastards. So numbering the film for himself is really interesting. I think that adds to the cinematic experience because um, it's something that that he's calling out for himself is like this is my eighth opus. So so that's cool. Um, and well, there's one other thing here. Oh, the blizzard. So. Levi, you live in Colorado, so you've probably been out in the middle of a blizzard before, right? Yeah, I have to uh, string a series of stakes out to my outhouse. Yeah. Um, but really, I just poop in the house after I do that. I'm not going out there. Inappropriate. Inappropriate. Uh, well, I mean, like, I've been I've been in West, Yellow, West Yellowstone, which is right on the border of Montana and, and, and Wyoming. And we went to Yellowstone Park in the middle of winter for like a tour. And my God, like that is the cold that I've never felt before <laughs> in my entire life. My in-laws are really big on West Yellowstone because they're big cross-country skiers. And they're actually down there right now. My mother-in-law posted something on Facebook yesterday where the real feel for West, Yelling- West Yellowstone, Montana was negative 28. So... <laughs> So those Montana winter blizzards are like some, or Wyoming winter blizzards are something that like I've I've dealt with firsthand, and I felt like it came across really really nicely uh, in this film. In that like that biting cold was was something that uh, that that really really came across nicely. Yeah, it's, once I've never had the negative. We've had negative a few times here in in Boulder, but that particular cold i have not yet felt and i don't think i'd want to based on even the the few times that we've had negative here it's like i just don't go outside why would you yeah it's we went out to this like mud pot and we were walking with the wind as we were going out and it wasn't that bad but on the way back to the snow coach we had to walk against the wind that's the worst it was it was insane. And, like, I'm wearing the, the greatest in outdoor technology. Like, trying to do that with a flannel jacket on, <laughs> I just can't, can't freaking imagine that. Well, you notice but everybody – nobody took off their gloves inside. Yeah. Like, everybody stayed yeah. bundled. I imagine that cabin oh, yeah. was still freezing. Yeah, and I love that. I love how they, they played on that as well, used, lighting it from behind and uh, – seeing the breath in certain instances, which I thought was really cool. Or when Samuel uh, Jackson was smoking and he blows it out of his like nose and it comes up yeah. under the hat and then out <laughs> from under the hat. Beautiful, yeah. beautiful shots like that. And that's something I really want to talk about in this movie as well. This film is a masterclass in cinematography. I've read some reviews online where – People are saying that the 70 millimeter format was wasted because it's supposed to be used for for sprawling vistas, and instead it was trapped in a in a haberdashery in the middle of winter. <laughs> but if and this is why I want to get back to this every frame of painting. I really encourage people. It's like a five minute video uh, on YouTube in the every frame of painting series where he talks about Kurosawa's movement. I watched this video right before I went into the film, and it was like this was Kurosawa c- cinematography, like incarnate in this movie in that things that things that uh two two main things that kurosawa does is that he likes to place weather in the background or weather as a background and what that does is it adds dynamism to the film so as things 
settled down from a character standpoint, there's still movement throughout the background and still still things happening that create a, a blustery feeling around the 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 lulls of the of the action. Um, and that's this movie to a T. I mean, setting this thing in the middle of a roaring blizzard um, and and keeping going out and recounting that blizzard over and over again, that's to this T. And the other thing is that camera movement, like to, in today's world, the post-born identity world, camera movement is is so, so like just, uh, just a throwaway. It's like, we're just going to move the camera while you're talking just to try to add something to the scene that makes it more interesting. With Kurosawa's camera movement, there's always a beginning, a middle, and an end to the camera movement. Like, there's a intentional motion behind every time the camera moves. And this film does that exactly. There was one thing that really stood out to me. It stood out to me one time. We, uh, as as Bob and, and Marquise are coming back from the stable, we have a shot through the window of the haberdashery out to the stable as they're walking back. Then we pull out, we go to uh, Michael Madsen's character sitting there silently, and then we, then that's the middle of the shot, and then we go over to uh, to um, Kurt Russell and 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 uh, and <laughs> Daisy. Gosh, I'm having a Daisy at the bar. So it's this, it's these really intentional camera movements, and it happens throughout the entire movie. I don't think that the seventy millimeter was wasted on this. I feel like they they used it, and then they respectfully used it. It, it, in using all of the great cinematography techniques that have been developed over the years, specifically in homage to um, to to Kurosawa. Well, and you so. want to talk about even inside, there was snow falling, and yeah. you only see it because of the way the lighting is set up. But there are just moments where you know you felt the blizzard coming inside, but it also gave kind of that ethereal quality to just see these flecks in the air as. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember one was Michael Madsen talking. Um, and yeah, it just, it comes inside. And I totally agree. I think I've seen that Kurosawa one. That was really, it's insightful and really makes me want to go back and see his stuff now. Okay. In that light. Yeah, it, it was it was really good. I, I, like I said, just go on YouTube, watch every frame of painting Kurosawa. It'll, it'll, it'll help you uh, understand the cinematography in this movie, I think. Um, the other thing I want to talk about is the door. The door was awesome. Oh, the best love- <laughs> reoccurring joke. It's one of those ones where the joke just gets funnier every time you tell it. Well, and it was great because at the beginning of the movie, it announces people as they walk in. Like, people aren't sauntering into the room or slowly sliding into the room. Whenever somebody comes into the haberdashery, it's literally a door busting. <laughs> it just It's literally a slam and then this whole, you know, to do to... To nail the door back shut and it allows us to um, as the haberdashery starts to get filled up with characters it allows us to announce when new characters are coming in which I thought was really really uh, effective and it was also hilarious well, and every, by the final times it was occurring I wanted to start shouting no you need two doors two boards you gotta have two boards one board won't work like it's it felt really oddly interactive like that yeah. repetition to the point where you start <laughs> Particip- you know, in the movies when they're like, the force is with you. Like, that's one of those, it's a cultural, like, we all know it. We all participate in that, the notion of it. Um, there's something about this door that just made me just feel like I was in that stupid haberdashery. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, I want to go to the forums real quick here. Uh, Flash Gordon. Uh, wrote in he had he had some good takes um, but the thing that I really like here is he cites the Atlantic reviews or the Atlantic's review of the film and it says it feels like Tarantino is trying to talk about the bizarre patchwork that makes up modern American society and the dark history underpinning its modern conflict that writer and this is Flash saying he says that writer felt like it didn't work but as a theme I felt like that came through pretty well mixed perfectly with the Tarantino style I feel like that that does help out a lot um it does i think that's insightful the idea of the patchwork because you do you think about the diversity that was in that room was probably Mm -hmm. shocking considering Mm -hmm. the setting and i like that he you know he talks about quintertino talks about the civil war and he talks about slavery i feel like there is a weird 
air right now um, coming from some people where it's like, well, we don't want to acknowledge the Civil War. We don't want to acknowledge slavery. We want to get past all of that. And I think it's really interesting because these are huge seminal moments in the history of our country, and they still resonate strongly today. Um, it, this was a volatile, insanely volatile part of American history. I would say in some ways the most volatile part of American history, aside from the revolution itself. Um, and I think it's really interesting to explore it and see which of these themes resonate through to today and maybe could help us uh, gain some perspective on, on culture throughout the United States. And, you know, I don't know if I'm being as articulate as I want to be, but. Um, no, I think you make I mean, that's the, especially with Tarantino, because, you know, it was the debate that people had with Django and Chain, you know, is he qualified to have to tell this mm-hmm. story? And it's the same thing with using the N word in this, in this movie, you know, he mm-hmm. uses it liberally and people get pretty bent out of shape, riled up about it, yeah. but it's not a part one. He doesn't, it's not glorified by any stretch. It's always meant yep. as offensive. And it's dangerous to forget that that stuff, to try and soften it. I mean, yes. you look back at at history, and the problem with conflicts like that is that it was really people killing people. And there were issues behind it that were certainly worth fighting for, especially on the side that we, I think, would agree are the correct sides. But you look back in history and some of the conflicts that the U.S. should not have gotten involved in, I think, represent times in our history where we forget you know what got us here and what um Mm -hmm. and even now with the political campaigns going on like a rhetoric (laughs) of hate never ends well this is what no fueled rhetoric of hate (laughs) looks like it looks like the hateful eight (laughs) (laughs) yeah I, i read a couple reviews of this movie and they're like you know there's not really any likable characters and i'm like have you seen Glorious Bastards. Have you seen, like, who is the everyman in Pulp Fiction other than Butch's girlfriend? Like, maybe she is, like, the closest thing to, like, a nice person in any of Quentin Tarantino's movies. Like, he doesn't have nice people in his movies. He has bad people in his movies. Once again, Tarantino is a bad people doing bad things. It's interesting. It's entertaining. That's why people go to the movies. And that's the other thing that I really want to touch on here is that, yes, it's interesting to think about it from a social perspective, but I really honestly feel that Tarantino is out there to make entertaining films. And he can draw on social things, but he's not there to make social commentaries. He's there to get your butt in the seat and give you a cinematic experience that you that you enjoy. And he pulls that off time and time again. So that's why when the argument comes up of, well, should he have done this or should he have done that? Or maybe this isn't good for this time period or blah, blah, blah. It's like it doesn't matter because the movie was good and it was entertaining. And, and that's really the – entire entirety of the goal of the film is to entertain you i don't need to i don't need every movie to be a preaching to me i sometimes i just want to watch a flick that's that's really entertaining and for some reason and i still even though we've gone on this entire journey of tarantino's films for some reason i do not i I have such a hard time pinpointing what separates tarantino from like a, a director that makes entertaining films, but you don't know they're not a household name because they just make flicks that are that are popcorn movies. There's there's just a there's a tiny, a tiny tick that that differentiates the popcorn flick director from Quentin Tarantino. I feel like it's really small, but there's some kind of secret sauce in there that separates him and makes his movies especially entertaining on their own level. <laughs> that's the hateful eight man and that's quentin tarantino i mean this is the, this is yeah, the end i feel like do we do you could you put in order tarantino's films so next week Levi, let's do a half hour podcast next week to wrap up tarantino okay um and good. we'll go ahead and do that and we'll kind of give our final thoughts on this cinematic journey and the ne- other thing listener that we're going to do in next week's episode is we're going to announce the three directors that we are putting up for vote for the next series of Direct, um, we're going to put up three directors. We'll figure out some kind of polling system, and you will be able to uh, help us determine which director we cover next on Direct. So, Do we want to put up a thread and let people – I mean, we're when we did the thread at the beginning of the mm-hmm. season, we got a ton of ideas. Do we risk yeah. doing that again, or do you and I just want to pick out three – 
I think that we can. I think we have enough um, enough juice and enough enough input from the audience where I think we can make an educated guess. Okay. But I sincerely invite the audience to go to uh, forums.ballmove.com, create a direct thread if you want, and go ahead and start the discussion there yourself. We're not the only ones who have to uh, start discussions there, and and any discussion that you want around any of our topics, we'd be happy to have it there at forums.ballmove.com. Also, you could send us an email directpodcast at gmail.com. And until next week, I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Cut.